Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me for this episode is my normal co-host. Well, we went through that before. It's my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hi, Bill. How are you doing, Ward? Well, um, I think I'm normal this week. You are normal this week. Um, so the weather has gotten bad again. Yesterday we had a gorgeous day. It's typical yeah. springtime on winter, the East Coast. Winter does not want to let go here. The The cherry blossoms are out. The forsythia are in bloom here at the Academy. I just uh, walked across the yard and uh, met with a midshipman for lunch. And I uh, was coming back. It's blowing a little bit of rain. And it's, you know, 48 degrees or something. And yeah, it... it uh, not not a wonderful Friday, but we're happy to be here in Beach Hall and uh, about to talk to a great guest about an article in the April issue of Proceedings, which is on the street. And uh, yeah, so and it's Friday, so uh, weather's supposed to get better over the weekend. Um, so a little bit of current news, um, sort of breaking news. We had a uh, active shooter at NAS Oceana this morning. Oh, um, I hadn't heard that. It was a, a, apparently a, a spousal disagreement um, at uh, VFA one forty seven. Um, so my understanding from our good friend Courtney Mabus of the Virginian pilot was the sailor was killed by base security. Yikes. Um, and the woman, the, the female in the altercation was uh, wounded, but apparently her wounds are not life-threatening. So as a guy who served at Oceana for the bulk of my Navy career, that's sort of my hometown. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I served there uh, for three years as well. You're familiar with yep. the base. So that's a, a very tragic and shocking um, uh, event. So uh, we we wish uh, all the associated folks, uh, you know, the best. Um, and uh, uh, this is certainly not a usual day there at uh, at Oceana. Uh, in in better news category, this breaking for us for our team. Uh, just yesterday, we wrapped up the uh, uh, judging of the. Um, Emerging and Disruptive Technologies Essay Contest, sponsored this year by MITRE. Uh, very happy for uh, with their uh, sponsorship this year, stepping up. Uh, uh, and the winners are uh, first prize, a, um, a former proceedings uh, or a previous proceedings author, Lieutenant J.G. Andrea Howard. We had her on the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, we had her on the podcast She's about a year sharp. ago. Very sharp officer. Yeah. Uh, so she won uh, writing about hypersonic weapons. She takes a uh, first prize of $5,000. Uh, second prize is... Um, uh, Lieutenant John Miller, he is down at uh, Navy Warfare Development uh, Center in uh, at, NAS, uh, at Norfolk uh, Naval Base. I talked to him yesterday afternoon. He was writing about metamaterial hegemony. And then third prize is another uh, previous proceedings author and previous prize winner, Major Scott Hummer, U.S. Marine Corps. He's down at Quantico. And uh, he takes uh, a check of $1,500 and a, and a one-year Naval Institute membership. So congrats to our Emerging and Disruptive Technologies essay contest winners. And thanks again to uh, MITRE for sponsoring it. Fantastic. And the as we say often on the show, the essay contests are the lifeblood of uh, our efforts here. Uh, it's the heritage of uh, the Naval Institute, the winners over over time, are an impressive bunch. You know, uh, yeah, the King uh, well, was the first general prize essay contest winner. No, the, right? the first was uh, Alfred Thayer Mahan in 1879. Ooh. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, there you go. That's yep. a pretty yep. good start. And Lieutenant Ernest J. King won he in, won. in 1909. That's okay. right. Yep. Yeah, uh, so, so it's an august uh, group that has been involved and won. Um, and as you just um, you know demonstrated, uh, you can win some pretty uh, pr- impressive amounts of money as well. If that's yeah, what motivates yeah. you, <laughs> if you if you got to give up a couple weekends to write a paper, right? Yeah. You know, uh, mm. your chances of uh, you know 
That's more than you'll get paid for an op-ed in the Washington Post. That is true. That. that is true. And, um, you know, as I often tell people, your chances of winning the Virginia lottery are one in 7.1 million. Your chances of winning a Naval Institute essay contest, if you enter, are roughly one in 100, one in 70, one in 200, you know. Uh, so the CNO essay contest last year, history essay contest had uh, about 200 entries. Uh, the general prize essay contest this year uh, – uh, had 105 entries. Uh, so yeah, you know, your chances are pretty good. If you put pen to paper and think, uh, and do some research on a professional topic, there's a good chance you'll walk away with a pretty significant check and a better, even better chance that you'll be published in proceedings. So we publish the top three winners automatically. Uh, and then we publish normally out of a hundred and something general prize essays this year. I think we picked another 10 that weren't winners that we will publish in one way or another online in the magazine, uh, maybe cut down to a blog item or something. But if you, if you enter a, a contest, you have a very good chance of, of winning and or being published. Fantastic. Yeah. So if you go into our search function and you type in amphibious warfare, you will come up with a bunch of cool results. Um, and as I've also mentioned on the show before, when I go lecture at TBS, and you were just down there uh, a couple weeks ago, um, or Expeditionary Warfare School, um, I like to point out that the rich heritage of proceedings with respect to amphibious warfare matches anything that Marine Corps Gazette has ever done, um, or any other organization that that, that deigns to cover uh, the Marine Corps' uh, warfare doctrine and, and so forth, starting with Major H.H. H. Utley's article in 1931 that basically said, we need to get our act together. So today's guest is uh, cut from that same cloth. Our guest today is Major Brett Friedman, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve, who wrote in the April issue of Proceedings an article called Ensuring Access in a Maritime World. Uh, so Brett, uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you're on the line from Quantico, correct? Uh, yes, thanks for having me. Just give us a 30,000-foot view of the main arguments in your in your article, and then we'll go from there. To echo the argument from uh, 1931, uh, this article is pretty much, uh, we've got to get our act back together. Uh, we, we succeeded in getting it together in, uh, prior to World War II, and we're getting to a point where uh, we have to do that again. Uh, I'd kind of start with uh, the National Defense Strategy, uh, recently released, uh, that is actually pretty specific as those documents go about future missions and potential adversaries and uh, kind of try to make the point that all of those potential adversaries, if we were to go fight them, have key maritime terrain uh, in that in their environment, in the, uh, the uh, area of operations. And if we're going to play the away game, which the National Defense Strategy intends, uh, the only way to do that is to get there. And the only way to get there is through expeditionary force projection, which requires a lot of things, including logistics. Uh, but at the pointy end of the spear is going to require some form of amphibious operation. May not be the amphibious assault of uh, World War II with everyone getting online and going across the beach, but it will require some form of that. And we are lacking in a lot of the platforms and support uh, enablers to ensure that we can do that. And you, you bring up, uh, you know, the, one of the things that I th uh, like about your article that was unique to it, at least in recent, I'd say the last couple of decades, proceedings history, is uh, you bring the point that the Navy, Marine Corps, and Army 
must integrate and coordinate to rebuild U.S. amphibious capabilities. And so, you know, in history, we there's, you know, many examples, particularly World War II, where amphibious operations were not just Navy Marine Corps, but significant Army uh, participation and leadership, right? And so, you know, D-Day being probably pr- most prominent in our minds when we think about World War II and amphibious operations, at least on the Atlantic side. Uh, so, you you've woven that idea of bringing the army back into the fold, and I think there's a, uh, one area that, that is called putting the band back together, which I really liked. And Ward, yeah, is, like Ward is a musician like that as well. <laughs> uh, so, talk a little bit about what the army might be able to bring to the to the table. So, I mean, you know, soldiers love to point out the Marines. The Army has done just as many, if not more, amphibious operations as the Marine Corps has, and they're right. Uh, but I always like to say, okay, but what are you doing about it today? Because they've let that ability atrophy to the point where it's almost non-existent. And Marines like to focus on our ability to do so. I think we have maintained that ability to uh, do amphibious operations in most situations, uh, but we've let some of that stuff atrophy, too. And if both services that both have a requirement to uh, perform amphibious operations let those capabilities atrophy, then we're left with nothing. How specifically, when you say we've atrophied, have we have we done so? So if you look back at World War II, so I'm not saying we're going to go back to doing large-scale amphibious assaults Normandy style, uh, but we some of the capabilities that enabled those things were now lacking. Like we used to have uh, a suite of different connectors to get not only troops, but stuff ashore and off the ship at sea that we no longer have. A lot of supply ships that used to exist in the Navy uh, that were really key to those large scale amphibious assaults. They just don't exist anymore. The Army does maintain a number of logistics connectors uh, as well as the Navy, uh, but they're actually actively trying to divest themselves of that. And that's the last of their capability. If they divest entirely, then it's just gone. The, you know, the, both the Army and the Marine Corps have performed amphibious operations, and the Marine Corps should be focused on amphibious operations in support of a naval campaign. But amphibious operations in support of a land campaign or a continental campaign, that's kind of an army mission. And I cite the DOD directive for them to maintain that capability in the article. And it's just something that they no longer pay attention to. Like I mentioned that there's been no army amphibious doctrine written since the mid-1960s and no army amphibious exercise since the late 1960s. It's just a capability that we may need again, according to the NDS, that doesn't exist anymore. Does Congress not pay any attention to that? Uh, I, I hate to hate to comment on Congress as a major, but uh, I think <laughs> that there are, you know, understandably higher priority items, uh, even within the amphibious operations uh, capability sphere. Uh, that Congress is paying more attention to. Yeah, that's interesting. We we uh, published back last fall uh, online a, a piece by an Army warrant officer who's a master of one of the Army's ships. 
and he was uh, decrying the the you know the decrepitude, if you will, of of that force in the army about the, you know all the different ships that they have and the the current state of readiness and uh, and training and crewing. Uh, and one of the things that came out, and you know, many people don't even know that the army has its own navy or amphibious capability, but th- they now only think of themselves as a uh, benign force uh, over the beach capability, right? It's a logistics force that can go into a benign environment, not an opposed environment at all. And you point out that they've got about 300 watercraft, 2,000 soldiers, etc. cetera. Uh, I think he, he would say that 2,000 is not nearly enough for what they have now, uh, nor is the budget, but uh, they don't even think about opposed entry. They don't think about, you know, forcible over the beach kind of entry. But uh, yeah, if we're going to do something uh, of not, you know, not even Normandy scale, but large scale, they, they've got to be part of it. Their capabilities have got to be wrapped into that. Yeah, I definitely agree, uh, especially considering uh, some of the missile precision guided weaponry our uh, potential adversaries have. There's no such thing as a permissive environment anymore. If they want to reach out and touch us, they can. Uh, so if you're not prepared to be able to operate in that situation, you may not. You may be sitting at home. Yeah, so the April issue of the magazine, if some of our listeners have not read it yet or, or taken a, you know, a glance through it, is uh, dedicated to expeditionary warfare. And that was a request from Major General Kaufman, who's OPNAV N95, and he's a Marine Corps advisor to the Naval Institute Board of Directors. And we had a conversation with him last fall. And uh, none of this content, you know, came from N95. They just said, "Hey, could you package a an issue of proceedings around this topic of op, of, uh, of expeditionary warfare?" So, uh, over the last couple of years, I've been thinking, and, and it seems like a lot of uh, Marines and naval officers, particularly naval officers who are in the amphib line, about you know, expeditionary operations in an A2AD or anti-access environment. And you, t- you touched on that a little bit. What, what kinds of thinking are going on? You're down at, uh, at Quantico. You're part of the Ellis Group at, uh, what is that, the Marine Corps Combat Development Command. Uh, what kind of thinking is going on within the Marine Corps about projecting power uh, or, or holding territory in, uh, in the littorals in an A2AD environment? Well, I, I can broadly speak to that uh, on the unclassed side, but a lot of that is uh, it's been captured in the, in the recent uh, Marine Corps operating concept and the joint Marine and Navy littoral operations in a contested environment concepts. And the, the basic idea is that um, no one's saying we're going to be able to do Normandy again. Uh, no one's saying we need to do that. Basically, the amphibious operations of today are going to look vastly different than they did going on 80 years ago. And that means a lot of things. Because of the precision-guided munitions, you need to distribute forces in smaller packages across wider areas uh, to avoid and mitigate uh, the effects of that precision-guided weaponry. And uh, we just don't have the platforms to do that anymore. We can either embark Marines or soldiers on an amphib, which is very big, or um, some of our smaller connectors, like uh, the AAV or the LCAC. But there's nothing in between. There's no smaller ships that can be harder to detect, like a frigate class or a sloop of war class, something like that, that embarks a platoon or a company instead of an entire battalion, and spread that out a little bit. And that 
makes it harder for uh, adversar- adversaries to detect and target uh, those platforms while also mitigating the effects of the fire if they do succeed in targeting them. So that's kind of what I'm getting at that, you know, in those documents I mentioned and in my article that it's not going to look like the amphibious assault of old. And it may not even be an assault. There's five different types of amphibious operation in joint doctrine, and the assault is only one of them. There are others like the raid or demonstrations that we could do in these environments that would contribute to the joint force if we had these platforms um, that we let, we used to have and currently lack. So I, I was down in New Bern, North Carolina, when was that, last fall at the Marine Corps Combat Correspondence annual event and was doing a Q&A on a panel there. And uh, one uh, Marine uh, asked, why is the Navy leaving the Marine Corps high and dry with respect to the number of amphibs it has and is building? Um, so the the broader question that I want to ask you and against your thesis here is, is the program of record sufficient for the emerging threat? Yeah, uh, and I would definitely say that there's that it is insufficient. Um, there's pretty broad agreement that somewhere around 55 amphibs would be ideal uh, for the commander requirements, uh, along with some of the um, environments we may operate in in the future. And remind um, me how many we have now. Uh, I w- want to say the number of what we have now is around 33. Okay. And the Navy wants to get to 38, which is far less than 55, but it, like 55 is the ideal. Even if we were to reach that point at some, in some point in the future, it'd be a long time from now, just realistically with budget constraints. Roger. So, um, in the interim, or if we do never reach that point, uh, smaller classes of ships able to, um, embark smaller units of troops, whoever they may be, can mitigate that gap uh, in the near and even the far term. If you have more options than the gap between the 33 amphibs and the 55 amphibs is less of a risk because you have other options besides those amphibs. So um, as we mentioned at the outset, when we're talking about the tragedy today at Oceana, I've spent a lot of time in Virginia Beach and have been on base at Fort Story a, a number of times and, and always marveled at the, the LCACs, the, the uh, air-cushioned vehicles. That struck me as a, you know, a, a robust capability um, that had a lot of focus and, and so forth. So is it still robust um, to your eye, and what would it take to get – um, the Fort Story for folks to start thinking more joint um, in terms of how what they what they do and because when you say you want to get a platoon of Marines ashore, I'm thinking couldn't one of those LCACs be used for that mission? Um, again, I say this not knowing how does an LCAC get to theater? Yeah, that that's that's exactly the point. Uh, to get an LCAC there, you need that amphib anyway. But if there was a ship that didn't require that, and maybe they got close to. Sh- close enough in the shore on that uh, on that frigate or something or the LCS and used ribs to get ashore, then you're not uh, depending so much on those LCACs, which we don't have a great number of, and are actually pretty vulnerable in an opposed environment. So again, what, where does the Army fit? Like, 
today? What, what would need to be done to open those lines of dialogue and get them to think more doctrinally along those lines? Um, well, I think uh, the Army, even more so than the Marine Corps, is pretty wrapped up in current operations. So um, with other wars going on, I don't foresee them making uh, revitalizing their amphibious capability a priority, and probably understandably so. Uh, where I think they should be doing more, uh, having paying more attention is in the Pacific. And they, you know, the Army has said it needs to be more involved in case there's a conflict with China and the Pacific. They need to be able to operate in that environment. And if they're going to operate in that environment, they're going to be doing amphibious operations of some, some form or fashion that may not be an assault, but because they lack those platforms and because they want to get into that environment, it seems like a perfect fit. I do think that the Marine Corps balks at that way too much. Uh, every time the Army talks about operating in maritime or littoral environments, they, uh, or literal environment, environments, uh, like our the heckles go up and we get mad that they want to approach on, approach on our territory, but I don't, like I mentioned in the article, I don't see that territoriality as productive at all. They have amphibious missions, according to the DOD. They would need amphibious capabilities in almost any major conflict. There's no reason for us to worry about them becoming the Marine Corps. It's just not going to happen. We're, we still have a mission to support the Navy in naval campaigns, and they don't. They might be doing amphibious operations, uh, to do other stuff or to, to uh, support a continental or land campaign, that's no threat to us. That's just how the joint force works, and we're part of the joint force. Yeah, In your article on page 30, you have a little bit about uh, the Army's capability uh, at Fort Story, and you recommend creating an Army Maritime Command there. Uh, because it's the last Army post with a shoreline, and it's close to Norfolk, and it's close to Marine Corps Base Quantico, and it's, you know, there there's a synergy there among the joint, you know, there could be a synergy among the joint force, and the Navy's LCACs, as Ward pointed out, are there, uh, or at least the East Coast LCACs, and um, that that would be a place to start developing some of this, uh, you know, what what are the lanes between the joint force, what are the capabilities that the different services need, and, you know, what are the joint capabilities that you can work on and exercise together. Um, have you talked to anybody in the Army about that? Uh, no, I actually uh, I haven't talked to anyone personally, but I, to the article you mentioned about the, the ship's captain, the Army ship's captain, you know, I cite all these articles. Uh, they've done a lot of research. Uh, certain Army officers and other personnel have looked into this, and I don't think it would have to be a large command, but like like any other organization, the Army has places you can go within the structure of the Army to work on certain issues. You go to Fort Sill to talk about artillery, or you go to Fort Benning to talk about maneuver and armor. But they don't have that for their amphibious operations. They've got Fort Story, but all they really do is maintain those uh, legacy vehicles that are still on the books. If I had to just make a flat-out recommendation to the CSA... Uh, you know, I'd say they, they just set up a future force directorate in Austin, Texas, uh, to kind of pay attention to where the future of the Army is going. Uh, why not uh, set up a little satellite campus at Fort Story to uh, handle that within that context of the future Army, 
what are they going to do about amphibious operations? Well, I remember when I was working at the V-22 program, one of the arguments that we would make, and perhaps it was myopic, was that the V-22, the reason you need it in, in the literals is you can skip the shoreline and go right to the objective. Is that is that an either-or proposition as you think about it doctrinally, or is it both? No, I, I would say it's definitely both. Anytime you can do that, you you know, the shift to objective maneuver, yeah, that's definitely the ideal. Uh, but the enemy gets a vote. They're going to have air defense, and you may not be able to do it, and you may have to fall back on going over the beach. And you never want to go over an opposed beach if you can avoid it. But that just gets back to the inherent flexibility of having diverse surface connectors and platforms. If the unopposed beach is really difficult to get to and your amphib can't get there, well, maybe your frigate or something even smaller can. And now you're going into an unopposed beach instead of going right into the teeth of the defense. Yeah. So at the uh, West Conference in uh, 2018, General Neller was famous for uh, for having said, I think we need more submarines, right? So here's the, the comment out of the Marine Corps talking about capabilities across the naval force. And he, he famously said there, you know, we're going to have to fight to get to the fight. And first time that the Marine Corps had to think about that for quite some time since really the end of the Cold War. And, and in order to fight to get to the fight in places like the South China Sea or maybe the Baltic, uh, it, it could take, you know, more Navy submarines to, to clear the clear the way for the amphibs. Uh, so cheer went up from the Navy audience, right, to hear the comment of the Marine well, Corps. Including say, he got a yeah, pat on the back a, from the CNO. pat CNO. on the back from the CNO, almost <laughs> hugged him, right? Yeah. But, um, Brett, I'm curious if you could – get the chief of naval operations to think about what we need more of uh, to support the Marine Corps or to support expeditionary warfare. In addition to the large amphibs, you know, the LPDs and LHAs, LHDs, what kind of a capability would you want the Navy to be, you know, putting putting money and putting budgetary force and, and, uh, you know, arbiting uh, Congress for? Uh, Well, I I definitely agree that... uh the more subs would be helpful. Uh, if you don't have control of the undersea environment and you don't have control of the air, none of this stuff is going to be a good idea. Uh, you've got to have that before you go in to uh, try to you know, do forcible entry. Uh, but beyond that, I, you know, like I, I've talked about in another proceedings article I wrote uh, with the director of the Ellis Group, uh, Douglas King, uh, that there's a need for more small craft like an intermediate amphibious platform between the like the LCACs and the LCUs and the amphibious warships themselves we've got big we've got small we should probably have something medium in there and it's the the, the other argument i would make is it doesn't need to be fancy it doesn't need to be you know like a next generation or a leap ahead technology like the F35 or anything like that. It just needs to be a seaworthy craft that we can throw a few troops on and get them from ship to shore as fast and as stealthily as possible. Yeah, we've and discussed how the procurement system has trouble with doing not fancy. Yeah. Right? So, uh, yeah. Right. And the F 35, in fact, we're talking to, uh, for the audience uh, to tease it out, we're, we're talking to Admiral Winter on April 17th, live from PEO JSF. Um, so uh, we'll get into some of the the evolution of the Joint Strike Fighter because that was supposed to be the low-cost truck option to the F-22's Ferrari. 
that's not quite how it's played out, but that's a separate matter. Yeah. Um, so, you know, when you say low-cost option, I, I'm not so sure that our current procurement system can affect it's, that. Yeah. Right? That's not what no, they do. Right. Right. Definitely not. And hopefully as the, uh, you know, the rapid uh, contracting and uh, acquisition processes that have kind of been instituted by Congress in the last couple of NDAAs, as those processes mature, maybe that's something we can use it for. Uh, the Marine Corps and the Navy get together and say, hey, we just need an off-the-shelf truck of a small craft that can not only move troops into, you know, into shore, uh, but to carry supplies between uh, expeditionary advanced bases, uh, relax some of that stuff, or uh, conduct sea control missions like VBSS, uh, or uh, even just act as, you know, kind of scouts and flankers for a larger fleet. You know, the, these ships could actually, if they're in a blue water operation, they could transit between ships and keep an eye on their flanks for terrorist attacks like the one in the USS Cole. There's a million different missions that these things could do, and you don't need to design one. There's plenty off the shelf that could be sufficient. Well, while, while I'm beating up the procurement system, remember, you, it brings to mind that the MRAP program, um, you know, the, the larger uh, land vehicles to m- make up for all the IEDs that are to try to mitigate the IED threat um, in both the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. That was a rapid that had the, you know, support from Secretary Gates on down. Um, so those got introduced in a, in a hurry, you know, with the right kind of support and the threat. Um, we, you know, everything doesn't have to be uh, lengthier. We, we've that MRAP program showed that you can do it quickly. And people were dying to yeah. make that happen. Well, yeah, that's right. right. But right. Uh, that's the point, right? Yeah, Isn't it? You know, right. so as but we talk he, about the threat and we talk about what is it going to take to make Brett's thesis, uh, you know, impact the program of record against, as he also mentioned rightly, a bandwidth challenged army would be a threat, of a, a real threat, where we're probably behind the eight ball a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that's, yeah. history shows that's when we get our act together and, that's and right. start to do it right. That's right. The MRAP wasn't ideal, but speaking of someone that lived out of one in Iraq for a year, like it was, I was thankful to have it and it was a good thing to have uh, when you're dodging IEDs for a year. No, absolutely. Uh, so maybe we don't need the ideal right now. Maybe we just need the MRAP of the sea to make sure we have that capability and that's a bridge to a more ideal platform somewhere in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And this conversation uh, goes along with a lot of conversations I've seen, email, online, et cetera, uh, much of it being led by uh, Wayne Hughes at the Naval Postgraduate School, you know, and the, the, the author of Fleet Tactics. And, and he is constantly talking about the need for uh, smaller craft uh, you know, the street fighter type of concept, right? Taking us back, not what LCS turned into, but what it started out as, as, you know, a lieutenant command, small, somewhat stealthy, heavily armed, expendable, right? You know, hey, yeah, we got 10, 15 guys on that or guys and gals on that ship. But if we lose one, it's not losing, you know, 300 people on a DDG and a billion dollar platform. We're talking about a, you know, 50, $100 million platform might be fast. Doesn't have to be, you know, 90 knot fast, uh, but it can 
be somewhat hard to track. It can be highly maneuverable. It can be armed with a couple of anti-ship cruise missiles. You, maybe you can put some Marines on it and you can slip them in close to the littorals. They get in on a, you know, combat rubber raiding craft, you know, those kinds of things. But this is, this is like the amphibious side of that conversation I keep you know, seeing parts of with uh, with Wayne Hughes and his yeah. his acting. Which well, is funny hearing you talk. You know, Street Fighter Admiral Sabrowski, That idea and what it now turned into, which is the unit cost is almost prohibitive to, yep. to about five hundred million dollars for yeah, an LCS. Yeah, yeah, for accepting the risk, and it is manned by more people than the original idea uh, sort of envisioned. So uh, yeah, these are these are the issues that uh, that we face. Yeah, and you know, nobody wants to talk about it. Hey, we. Some of these might be expendable, but in the business we're in, I mean, that's what you have to do to be a professional. It's going to happen. You should prepare for it. Yeah, and and survivability in the case of Street Fighter would be its speed and and the fact it was armed with some offensive weapons. Right. Because I think we do have a tendency to overthink survivability as well. And that entails expense, and you get into mission creep and requirements creep. And you get it yourself into a yeah. expensive airplane, oh, or more, more or damage, ship more that, damage that, control sailors, which means more crew, yeah, which means right. a larger ship, which all means, the things know, all that things. defeat the purpose for creating this platform in the first place. Right. So, but as we're saying, a viable and immediate and existential threat like IEDs, in the face of that, where you know troops are dying on a daily basis, um, that really was impressive. How quickly they feel of that and. Uh, yeah, Brett, I spent a month uh, in, in MRAPs in Paktika province when I was embedded with the 101st Airborne. So I, I learned how to ride in the backseat of those going down Route Alpha, um, which was uh, which was interesting. <laughs> but I was happy to be in that instead of an up-armored Humvee, for sure. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So, Brett, what's uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? And uh, what what's likely next in your Marine Corps uh, reserve career? Uh, well, I'm probably, uh, I'm at 19 years, so I'm probably gonna terminal out at the Ellis Group. Um, and I'm working on, uh, various projects for them. Uh, a lot of the stuff is, you know, secret level. Uh, I don't have any articles on, uh, on the horizon right now, but you never know when I'll think up a topic and just have to get it down. Well, the, the Marine Corps essay contest will be coming out soon uh, with the deadline, I think, normally end of July or end of, end of August to publish in the uh, November issue. So uh, that might lure, uh, you know, some ideas out of you. Yeah, I'll, de- I'll definitely take a look. But just remind the audience that uh, uh, Major Friedman has been a workhorse and sort of the poster child for the Independent Forum, multiple proceedings articles, written a couple of books for the Naval Institute Press. Yes, like you said, you never know when something's going to pop, um, and we certainly appreciate uh, your efforts uh, You know, in the past. Amen. Thank you. All right, good talking to you. So our guest again was uh, Major Brett Friedman, U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. Uh, his article is in the April issue of Proceedings, starts on page 28. It is called Ensuring Access in a Maritime World. So, Brett, uh, thanks again for joining us. It was, uh, it was great to have you on the podcast and great to have your article as part of the five-article uh, package that we had on expeditionary warfare in the April issue. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've got a couple of great things coming up for the Naval Institute. Our annual meeting is 25 April at CSIS on Rhode Island Avenue in Washington, D.C., Goes starts at uh, 1600. Uh, it's a great event, free to the public, free to members, uh, free. It's an open bar and drink uh, sponsored by uh, some a, 
couple of great sponsors. We'll have uh, the Honorable Ellen Lord, and uh, so she'll be the the main speaker. We'll have uh, remarks from our chairman and also from our CEO. Uh, we'll be uh, honoring the Proceedings Author of the Year, the Naval History Author of the Year, the Press Author of the Year, and winners of several different essay contests, including this year's General Prize Essay Contest. So uh, if you're in the D.C. area and you can make it to uh, Rhode Island Avenue to CSIS on the 25th of April, it'll be a big Naval Institute family event. It's always a great event and uh, it's great networking and you'll, you'll meet people, you'll have a drink, you'll eat some really good food and you'll be happy that you, uh, that you joined us. All right, until then, uh, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.